Have you ever bought into something that you really thought this was going to be a great plan and then it really wasn't what you thought it was going to be? Have you ever had that experience? Or somebody sell you something and you get this new gadget and this new device and you open it up and it's just not what you thought it was going to be. And you really feel like you got egg on your face. You really feel like you were deceived by that person. And that's a horrible feeling, right? Because you're like, I trusted this person. I thought I could believe this person. And that person deceived me. Well, today, as we talk about epic failures, as we continue that, I, I, I was th- uh, this passage came to mind. I've never preached on this passage before. It's a different passage for me. And in fact, it's a passage, the first time I read it, when, uh, many years ago, reading my Bible through, I was like, I don't really get this passage. I don't really understand this passage. So, so now, getting a chance to work through it, it's a really good passage because it talks about uh, an epic failure that many times, and a lot of us shaking our heads, have experienced, and that is times when we've been deceived. And we live in a world today of deception. There's a lot of deception going on. And we're in a spiritual battle. And Satan wants to do everything he can to deceive people. As Jesus said, he is the father of lies. And so Satan's goal is to deceive people outside the church and even inside the church. Satan wants to deceive people. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings Chapter 13, 1 Kings chapter 13, it's the tale of two unnamed prophets in scripture, and it's one of those prophets has an epic fail, and it's the epic fail of deception. So we're going to read the story, we're going to do a lot of reading this morning here as we look in God's word, and, uh, and then we're going to really get into it. So 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1, here's what it says, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. By revelation from the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. Now, let me give you a little history. Bethel was the place where Abraham first built an altar. Bethel is the place where Jacob later wrestled with God, and it was there that God called Jacob Israel. So Bethel was a very particular place. Deborah, when she was a judge, it was near Bethel. Samuel considered it one of his cities of judgeship. So Bethel was an important place. Elijah, when he was a prophet, it was where the school of prophets was uh, there at Bethel. Now, during David's reign, Bethel kind of lost its prominence. What happened was when David became king, that's when he set up Jerusalem as the capital city, the city of David. It was under David's reign that Jerusalem became the capital. And so at that point, Bethel, which was really significant, kind of lost its significance because everything shifted down to Jerusalem. That was the place where where the temple was going to be built. In fact, after David came Solomon and the temple was built. And then after Solomon came his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam uh, would not let up on the taxation of the people. In fact, he said, I'm going to make it even harder. And as a result, Israel split into two kingdoms. You had the southerners, the southern kingdom, also known as Judah. And then you had the northern kingdom known as Israel. Now, if you look at the text here in verse 1, you have a, a guy named Jeroboam. Let me tell you about Jeroboam. Jeroboam actually... When King Solomon was still alive, Jeroboam was over the labor force under King Solomon. At one point, Jeroboam led a little bit of a rebellion against Solomon. And as a result, Jeroboam had to flee to Egypt. Well, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king and Israel split into two parts, Jeroboam came back. 
And the people in the northern half of Israel says, you need to be our king. Because he had proven himself to be a really good leader there. So, so Jeroboam became the king of people. Now here, here's the problem. The temple was in the southern part. Okay, y'all following me? The temple was in the southern part in Jerusalem. Jeroboam is the king in the northern part. So Jeroboam's thinking, wait a minute. If I'm really going to get these people to follow me, I've got to get them uh, not only politically but religiously as well. Because right now the religious seat is still in Jerusalem even though it's in that southern kingdom. So Rehoboam thinks, or Jeroboam thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reinvigorate Bethel. That place that used to be of real prominence. So he reinvigorates Bethel and he erects these golden calves there at Bethel. And originally it's supposed to be, we're going to still worship God, but we're going to do it here at Bethel. But eventually it devolves into uh, synchronistic worship and they start worshiping the Baals and things like that. And Jeroboam, again, to kind of get the religious center away from Jerusalem but up to Bethel, he appoints his own priests. He doesn't use any of the Levites, which was what God said should be the priests. He doesn't use any of them. He appoints his own priests. In fact, Jeroboam himself, as you see here in verse 1, he would offer sacrifices there as well, which was strictly prohibited by God. He was not a Levite. And so here he had... He, he kind of reinvigorated Bethel. It's the new center of religion. He has these golden calves there. He has appointed priests, whole different priesthood. They're not the Levites like they're supposed to be. He appoints priesthood. He actually himself is one of the guys that's actually offering some of the things like that. And in fact, you'll read throughout the Old Testament the sins of Jeroboam. This is the guy. This is the guy that really, really led Israel away. So again, here's our text. A man of God. We don't know his name. A man of God came from Judah, that's the southern kingdom, to Bethel by revelation from the Lord. So God had spoken to him while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to offer incense. So again, Jeroboam's not supposed to be doing that. He's not a Levite, but he has set up this new center of worship. Now let's go on and see what happens here in verse 2. The man of God cried out against the altar by a revelation from the Lord. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah, and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who you are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. He gave a sign that day. So here's what the prophet does. He gave a sign that day. He said, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart, and the ashes that are on it will be spilled out. So, so again, he says, here's this sign. He says, I'm, you want to know if what I'm saying is really true? Because he's talking about the future. A future king, Josiah, is going to come. And, and, and your, your priests are going to, they're going to be burned on this altar. Their bones are going to be burned. This is not right. And to just prove it to you, this altar right here that you have built, King Jeroboam, is going to be ripped apart and the ashes are going to spill out. And so, so he gives that prophecy. And so look at what happens. When the king heard, that's King Jeroboam, the word that the man of God had cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him! So he's pointing at him. But the hand he stretched out against him withered, and he could not pull it back. What a wild sight. Arrest him, and his hand just kind of withers up. That's crazy. Look at verse 5. The altar was ripped apart. So right there it happens. The altar rips apart. And the ashes spilled off the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So right there it happens. The king's hand withers up. The altar breaks apart. The ashes spill out. Verse 6. The king has a change of heart. 
It says this, Then the king responded to the man of God, Please plead for the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand might be restored to me. Okay, so king's like, please do something. This is not good. So the man of God pleaded for the favor of the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was at first. So all of a sudden his hand stretched back out, just like it was at the beginning. Then the king declared to the man of God, Come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. So he's offering him this, this great reward. Okay, look at what you've done. Now here, here's the thing. True prophets of God did not accept rewards. They did not accept rewards. If you know the story of Nahum when he came to Elijah because he had leprosy and Elijah says go dip yourself and he does and he comes back and the, the, the leprosy is cured and he comes back and says let me pay you and Elijah's like you're not giving me anything. Okay, true prophets of God, they, they weren't doing this for the money because this, this wasn't of them. This was of God. But the, here's so the king, he's really, he's wanting to give this guy something and, and he's just as, as, a, as, a, as a, a, a thank you and things like that. Look at what this unknown prophet says. But the man of God replied, if you were to give me half of your house, I still wouldn't go with you and I wouldn't eat bread or drink water in this place. For this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You shall not eat bread or drink water or go back the way you came. So, so far, this is awesome. If the story stopped here, this would have been an epic success. He prophesied as he was told. The altar split apart. There was the king's hand that was withered and restored back. I mean, this was clearly a man of God. He wasn't going to take anything from the king. He said, nope, I've done my job. I am done. I'm out of here. I'm going to leave. And look at verse 10. So he went back another way. He did not go back the way he had come to Bethel. So this guy is doing it perfectly, beautiful. Oh, wow, this is a prophet of God. Now, here is where it really goes crazy. Look at verse 11. Now, a certain old prophet, don't know who he was, was living in Bethel. His son came and told him all the deeds that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. His sons also told their father the words he had spoken to the king. So he gets a full report of everything that's happened, all that was said, all that happened, the king's hand, you know, and the altar and all that. Then their father said to them, the sons, which way did he go? His sons had seen the way taken by the man of God who had come from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he got on it. He followed the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. He asked him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he said. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Oh, wait, wait, wait. he wasn't supposed to do that. Remember, he's not supposed to go back to Bethel. He's not supposed to go back there. He's not supposed to eat bread, drink water. But he answered, I cannot go back with you, eat bread or drink water with you in this place. So good for him. Still staying true. So he's really doing well. For a message came to me by the word of the Lord. You must not eat bread or drink water there or go back the way you came. So he's really, really, he's sticking to what he knows God has said to him. Now here's what this older prophet says. He said to him, I am also a prophet like you. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you to your house. 
so that he may eat bread and drink water. So now you've got two prophets, one who says, I'm a prophet too, and an angel told me, you're supposed to come back, and you're supposed to eat and drink. You're supposed to go back. The old prophet deceived him. Verse 19, and the man of God went back with him, ate bread at his house, and drank water. So he goes back. Verse 20, this is really where it gets crazy. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And the prophet, that's the old, old prophet there, the prophet cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, this is what the Lord says, because you have rebelled against the commandment of the Lord and did not keep the commandments that the Lord your God had commanded you, but you went back and ate bread and drank water in the place that he said to you, do not eat bread and do not drink water, your corpse will never reach the grave of your fathers. Wow. So after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, the old prophet saddled the donkey for the prophet and he, brought, he had brought back. When he left, the young prophet, a lion met him along the way and killed him. His corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey was standing beside it and the lion was standing beside the corpse too. Now obviously there is supernatural here because the lion's not eating the body, the lion's not attacking the donkey. But the lion did kill the prophet. There were men passing by who saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing beside, and they went and spoke about it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his way heard about it, he said, He is the man of God who disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. The Lord has given him to the lion, and it has mauled him and killed him according to the word of the Lord that he has spoken to him. Then the old prophet instructed his son, saddle the donkey for me. They saddled it. And he went out and found the corpse of the man of God. So he went out, found the corpse of the man of God on, on the road, and the lion standing beside the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse or mauled the donkey, so the prophet lifted the corpse of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. The old prophet came into the city and mourned to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own grave, and they mourned over him. Oh, my brother. Oh, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, you must bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the, Lord, for the word that he cried out by revelation from the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines and high places in the cities of Samaria is certain to happen. Now that's a crazy story. Anybody like, hey, I've never heard that story. It's, it's one of those stories that's just kind of buried there. And when the first time I read that story, I was like, oh, wait a minute, God. You got, we'll just say the younger prophet and the older prophet. You got this younger prophet who did what you told him to do. He goes there to Bethel. He confronts the king. Why did you kill him? Why did you do that? Well, because he didn't completely obey the Lord. And here's my challenge to you this morning. Because we live in a world of deception. And Satan is alive and well. So here's going to be my challenge to us this morning. If you're watching by Facebook, here's my challenge to you. Be diligent. Because deception destroys. Be diligent. Because deception destroys. You see, here's the reality. Paul said this in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against people. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. 
Look, open your eyes. Satan is at work. Now, do you ever confront people or beliefs that people have and you think, how can you believe that? Have you ever had that? You hear these crazy beliefs? I looked up some crazy beliefs. Did you know that in ancient Britain, women used to carry acorns in their pockets to stay looking young? They believed that acorns in their pockets would make them look young. In the 19th century, did you know that English men would not eat salads because apparently lettuce was determined to be a sterile plant? And so men wouldn't eat salads, okay? No vegetarians at that point. It was, here's another one. It was considered good luck to encounter a goat while traveling to an important meeting. So the next time you go into a meeting at work and you see a goat, you're doing good. On New Year's Eve in Spain, not everybody kisses when the clock strikes 12. In fact, there's a superstition there in, in Spain that if you eat 12 grapes at midnight, you'll have good luck. So that's just something a lot of people believe. In Japan, this is interesting. If a hearst passes you by or you walk by a graveyard, you must tuck your thumbs in your pockets to protect your parents. This is because the Japanese for thumb literally means parent finger. And so by hiding your thumbs, you're protecting your parents in Japan. Interesting thought. In Russia, this is kind of gross. If a bird drops its droppings on you, it is considered to be a good luck charm and you will have riches. So the more bird droppings you get on your house and on your car, the richer you're going to be one day. See, don't run your car through a car wash. Now, you listen to those things and you think, that is just bizarre. Some of those things, are you serious? And we have them too, don't we? Right, don't walk under a ladder. We've had that one. Or if a bird gets in your house, we all heard that one, you know. Some, I think somebody's going to pass away. We, we have all sorts of, we have our own superstitions. Some of y'all may have some superstitions that you just kind of don't think about. But, oh, you, you just can't change that now. That's just the way it is. And, and so we all have these crazy things out there. And, and so you, you look at people like in Japan and Russia or even the United States with our superstitions. You think, how can people believe that? Sometimes when I'm reading news feeds and things on Twitter and things and, I, and I, I see people get in debates, I'm like, how can you believe that? That just seems so crazy. Why do you believe it? How is it that people believe those things? And in fact, if you're watching this morning live, maybe some here in this room, you might be thinking that about Christianity. How can you believe this Christian stuff? I mean, really? How, how, how do you believe that there's this man that lived on the earth 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and that somehow through this guy you can have eternal life? I mean, how can you really believe, Christian, there is a God? I was reading that debate the other day. How do you believe there really is a God? Prove that there really is a God. Why do you believe there really is a God? And in fact, that's a good question. Why do you believe what you believe? You see, I'm not one of these people that just says, well, that's the way I was raised. I don't think that cuts it. Why do you believe what you believe? In fact, let me ask you, how do you get, arrive at a belief? How do you arrive at saying, this is what I believe? How does a person get there? Well, let me tell you, I think there's five things that make up our beliefs. And I'll, and I'll put them up on the screen. Here's what I think helps us arrive at our beliefs. Evidence. In other words, if you see evidence for it, you arrive at your belief. For example... I have my chair here, of course. Now, the evidence is that this chair will hold me up. Why? Well, I've seen other people sit in this chair. 
In fact, you're sitting in chairs. So I think the evidence, let's just assume I'd never sat in this chair, I would say the evidence seems to be that this chair will actually support other people. In fact, the evidence is, you know, that it's sitting on the ground firmly, it's made of steel, and, uh, or whatever that is, and, and it, it seems to be able to hold my weight. So I would say the evidence is that that chair would hold me up. So I believe, okay? Now, another way we arrive at our beliefs is our experience. So I go over and I sit in the chair. Well, I've experienced it. It actually holds me up. So when I put this chair on stage, I believe it's going to work because of the evidence and the experience. Also, the authority. Now, let's just say that a master carpenter builds this chair, and, and, and I've never sat in the chair, and I say, uh, Tom, do you think this chair would hold me up? And Tom says, yes. Tom's a master carpenter. And Tom says, you notice the structure of the chair, the way it's designed. You'll notice the quality of that. And yes, based on my expertise, my experience, I can tell you this chair will hold you up. So I would take Tom's word for it because he's an authority. Also, I believe this chair would hold me up, not only because of the evidence, not only now because I've experienced, not only because an authority who knows about chairs and design has told me to work, but also by revelation. Let's assume it's the first time you sit down in the chair and you're like, whoa, this works. Ah, okay, I believe it. And finally, association. I associate that four legs makes it stable. I associate that. I associate the metal and the materials of this chair with having the strength to hold me up. So the way you and I arrive at our beliefs, and I'm not talking just about our faith beliefs, I'm talking about any belief, is usually it's a result of evidence, experience, an authority figure, a rev moment of revelation, and finally, association. That's how we arrive at beliefs. Now, here's the thing. How are you and I deceived? We are deceived when one of these is missing, and we ignore that fact. Or when one of these is misconstrued or misplaced, and we ignore that fact. For example, let's go back to the, our story here. How was this, we'll just call him the young prophet. How was this young prophet deceived? Well, first of all, he had the evidence that what he heard was from God. God told him, don't eat bread in this place, don't drink, don't go back to this place, go by a different way. He had the evidence that was from God. How, what was the evidence? When he prophesied against the altar, what did it do? It ripped open. Just what he believed the Lord had told him, right there it happened. He had the evidence based on that, that the, this was from God. When the king stretched out his hand and, and, and to say arrest him and then the hand withered up. Wow, that was evidence that God was in the midst of this. The young prophet had evidence that this was from God. He was not to eat bread in that place, not to drink water in that place, not to go back to that place. He was supposed to leave Bethel and not go back. He also had experience that this truly was God. He saw the altar split open. He saw the king's hand withered and destroyed. He also had authority here. He knew it was from the word of the Lord. Again, verse 9, if you go back to our text, he says this, For this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord. So he knew the authority here was God. God is in control. God told him to do this. He acted on that. He had authority. He had revelation. Look at verse 1 in our text. Verse 1 of chapter 13. A man of God came from Judah by Bethel by a revelation. 
I don't know how that happened. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But at some point, this young prophet had a revelation. Maybe it was a a vision. Maybe it was a dream. I don't know. Maybe an angel appeared to him. I don't know. But it was clearly a revelation, and he knew it was from God. And notice the association here. He knew it was from the Lord. So he knew this was from God. It was proven to be from God when the altar split open, just like he was told it would. And when he saw the king's hand withered, he definitely knew this was what God told him to do. So how is he deceived? Same way we're deceived. We're deceived when those key components, evidence, experience, authority, association, revelation, are somehow missing, misplaced, or ignored. That's how we're deceived. Look at the evidence. Look at the story. Again, go back to the story here. I read, I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But there was no evidence that what this prophet was saying was actually from the Lord. There was no evidence. He just said, an angel came to me. How do you prove that? There was no evidence. There was nothing that the old prophet prophesied and actually happened. There there was no evidence. All he said in verse 18, if you go back to our text, he says, an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. And here's what the angel said. Bring him back to the house so that he may eat bread and drink water. There was no evidence that this had happened. And in fact, what the old prophet is telling the young prophet is totally contradictory to what the young prophet knew came from God. There was no evidence that this man really was a prophet of the Lord. Now, the Bible just says it was a certain prophet. But remember, Jeroboam had set up his own priesthood. So I don't know that there was even evidence that this guy was truly a Levitical priest and truly a prophet in the land. He may have been just a guy who wore the garbs. And and, and again, their priests there in Bethel tended to mimic the priests in Jerusalem because they were trying to get the people to worship at Bethel. And and Jeroboam was trying to keep everything in-house there. He didn't want his people going down to Jerusalem. So, So maybe he was wearing the garb, but there was nothing there to prove that he truly was from the Lord. And in fact, I would argue this. If he truly, if this older prophet was truly a prophet of God, why wasn't he dispatched to stand against the king? Because he lived in Bethel after all. Why didn't he stand against the king? There was no evidence that he was of the Lord. Again, here's the thing. I want to warn you if you're watching Facebook here today. When someone makes a claim, you need to look for the evidence. Okay, When someone makes a claim, you need to look for the evidence. For example, as Christ followers, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He's the only way to heaven. Now, some people say, well, I just believe that. Not good enough. Where's the evidence? Well, first of all, there's evidence that Jesus is, was a person on this earth. You have the eyewitness accounts in the Bible. You have... People like Luke, who was a physician, who says after thoroughly investigating all these things, he wasn't one of the original apostles, he wasn't, as far as I know, part of the the original ones that saw him, but he goes back, he's a doctor, and he says after thoroughly investigating these things, this is what I want to write. So so you have have this, this person, you have 
people outside of the Bible. You have Josephus, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian who talks about Jesus in his writings. You have Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, who also makes mention of Jesus. You have Pliny, who was an ancient Roman politician, who also refers to that. In fact, in an article in The Guardian, it, it starts off because it's talking about, was Jesus really a person? Here's how that article starts off. This is The Guardian. This isn't like a you know, religious thing or whatever. It starts off, though, the historical evidence for Jesus of Nazareth is both long-established and widespread. That's how the article starts off. Again, this isn't a religious magazine, religious paper. Within a few decades of his supposed lifetime, he is mentioned by Jewish and Roman historians as well as by dozens of Christian writings. Compare that, for example, with King Arthur, who supposedly lived around A.D. 500. The major historical sources for the events of that time does not even mention King Arthur. And he is referred to three or four hundred years after he is supposed to have lived. The evidence for Jesus is not limited to later folklore as are the evidences for King Arthur. See, nobody questions King Arthur. But people say, well, how do you know Jesus existed? The Bible, obviously, eyewitnesses, people like Luke. You've got the Roman historian, you've got Jewish historians, you've got the writings outside of the Bible, I would say the evidence is there. He really was on this earth. Now, here's the other thing. I also believe there's evidence for the resurrection. How do you explain the disciples who fled at the cross, now boldly preaching that he is risen? How do you explain that? Something happened. How do you explain the, the whole resurrection story? Because it's totally backwards. If you were going to invent it in that culture, it's totally backwards from the way you would write it. The ladies were the first ones to discover him in the tomb. That's not the way you would have written that story in that, in, in that era. Again, the inability for his enemies to produce a body. All they had to do was bring the body out. That's all they had to do. Here he is. He's dead. Would have ended it right there. But they didn't, even though they knew where the tomb was at. Again, you have the evidence there of skeptics, like his brothers who go from skeptics to believers. You have the appearance to the masses of 500. And when Paul writes it, many of whom he says are still alive. In other words, go ask them. They saw him. Again, you have the martyrs. The evidence uh, that the resurrection happened is not only beyond that, but billions of people who today follow Christ as Savior. To me, the reason we as Christians believe that is we believe that the evidence is there. He was a real person who walked on this earth, who died on a cross, and resurrected Again, and again, if you're on a search for truth, if you're watching by Facebook and you're on a search for truth, that is great. That's awesome. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Look for where the evidence leads. Is there evidence? You see, we're deceived when we ignore the evidence. We're deceived when we ignore the evidence. Again, the young prophet ignored the evidence. There was no evidence that this old prophet was really of God. There was no evidence that he was telling him to come back. In fact, it was totally contradictory to what the young prophet knew God had said. Again, another way we arrive at our beliefs is authority. Look at the story. Here's what happened to the young prophet. He misplaced authority. You know, here, here you have this young prophet. Um, we're just going to say he's young. And you have this old prophet, so apparently there was an age difference. And apparently the young prophet misplaced authority. Instead of looking to God, who he knew had proven that this was from the word of the Lord, he looks at this older prophet, and probably because he was older, he thought, well, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Because after all, if you're older, you're wiser, right? At least that's our assumption. 
So he probably looked at him and said, well, he's an older guy. He's made a claim here and things like that. He says in verse 18, I am a prophet like you. So the younger prophet says, well, apparently you are the authority. Even though he knew the authority was from God. Because it had been proven. He misplaced authority. Again, if you're, if you're in a search for truth, that's awesome. But make sure you don't misplace your authority. Here's the deal. I want to say this to church. Just because somebody has reverend in front of their name or doctor doesn't mean they're an authority. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be preaching the truth. Just because your friends or your relatives say, hey, you ought to go and, and, and buy into this, doesn't mean that you should. And it doesn't mean that your friend or relative who's kind of acting as that authority figure really knows what they're talking about. Just because a book says something, uh, or just because a book claims to be divine, doesn't mean it's a divine book. Just because a college professor says, no, blah, 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 doesn't necessarily mean that they really are right. Again, it's easy to follow the wrong authority. Again, one thing I like in Acts chapter 17 is when Paul would come and preach, it said this, the people were, op- were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. So here is the great apostle Paul, a man who was recognized as an authority by the other authorities, which were the apostles. They said, yep, he is an apostle. Of course, those apostles were given authority by Jesus Christ. And, and here's Paul preaching the scriptures, which was recognized as an authority because it had stood the test of time. This is the Old Testament. Paul's preaching uh, scrutiny, logical consistency. All those things have been proven by the Old Testament. It stood up against those things. But here's a man who has been called an apostle by the apostles, preaching the scriptures. And yet what I love is the Brians were like, well, let's check that out. Let's just make sure. Because again... Just because somebody says something doesn't mean it's so. Just because that used car salesman says that's a beautiful car, it's going to give you any problem, doesn't mean it's so. Right? We get deceived when we misplace authority. All right? And let me tell you something. Again, if that authority figure or that divine book is not open to scrutiny or questioning, that's a red flag. The Bible's the most scrutinized, challenged book of all time. And that doesn't bother me, because the truth stands. But when you have religious leaders who don't want to be questioned, or their divine books, they don't want you to question it, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. It, it, again, if their arguments aren't logically consistent, that's a red flag. Uh, I, I wasn't going to say this because I don't want to get into the debate, but I don't understand evolutionists who on the one hand tell me that it's all about survival of the fittest, but then they're worried about the red owl. Wait a minute. If it's survival of the fittest, who cares? I mean, if the animals die out, they die out. Now, again, we are to be stewards of God's creation, and we should take care of them. We believe that not because of evolution, but because God created it, and we are to be stewards of it. But it, to me, it's logically inconsistent. If you believe in survival of the fittest, who cares if those species die out? So again, is it logically consistent? Does it, does it really correlate to real life experiences? Is what they're saying actually provable, at least adequately, by the evidence? Here Again, we as Christians, if you're watching this morning, you're wondering why we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Well, first of all, the evidence, historical evidence, the resurrection evidence, 
We believe that. It's there. We also believe he's the Son of God by authority. You say, what do you mean? Jesus established his authority by his miracles. He established his authority by his teaching. The people who heard him said, we've never heard anybody teach like this because he teaches one who has authority. He established his authority by fulfilling a prophecy. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the crucifixion, all that stuff had been prophesied. He established his authority by challenging his critics. He says, who of one of you can charge me with sin? Not a one of them. He established his authority. One of the reasons that we believe Jesus is the only way is his authority. He proved his authority. Again, people are deceived when we misplace or ignore those five key com- one of those five key components. Evidence, experience, association, revelation, and authority. Again, here's this young prophet. He misplaced the authority. Suddenly he thought this older prophet had more authority than the word of the Lord that he had actually heard. And that let him down the road of deception. Again, we have to be careful. Jesus said this in Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Remember the old prophet? I'm a prophet just like you. But inwardly are ravaging wolves. Again, don't assume because somebody's older or wiser or they're supposedly wiser or just because they're older. Don't assume just because somebody has a PhD past their name or they're a religion professor. Don't assume because somebody's a, you know, whatever sort of leader that they actually are the authority. You need to look at the evidence. Christians also believe that Jesus is the Son of God because we associate Him with being God. Again, we arrive at our beliefs by association. Just like I associated the way this thing is constructed that it's going to be stable. I associate this with stability. Again, the reason we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God is because we associate Him with God. For example, we believe God is sinless. Guess what Jesus was? Sinless. Uh, we, we believe that God is all power, get, powerful. Guess what Jesus did? Healed every kind of disease. We believe that, that God is all-knowing. Guess what? Jesus knew people's thoughts. If you read the text, we believe that God is all loving. And guess what? Jesus loved the prostitutes. He loved the sinners. He loved the tax collectors. We believe that God is truth. And guess what? Jesus preached the truth. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. We believe that God cannot be defeated. And guess what? Neither could Jesus. In fact, he defeated sin and death on the cross. So we associate Jesus as being God. We believe he's 100% God, 100% man. That's that tension there. But we look at that and we say, yeah, if God was in the flesh, this is what we would expect. And that's why exactly we see in Jesus. Again, this young prophet was deceived because he wasn't following what he knew to be true. He disregarded those experiences. Again, he was deceived because he disregarded the experience. He had seen the altar split apart. He had seen the king's hand withered. He disregarded that thing, and he was willing to just do whatever the older prophet told him. He was ready to throw it away. Again, we believe things because of the experience in it, okay? If you're on a search for truth, that's great. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God because we experience that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their lives are changed. We've seen it. We, we can look in Scripture and we see disciples change from fearful disciples to boldly proclaiming 
Christ. We can see a guy named Paul who was changed from being a persecutor of the church to the great apostle of the church. He changed me many, many years ago. I've seen him change drug addicts into whole people, missionaries and preachers. Seeing God do it. That's been my experience. The other thing that we're deceived is when we disregard revelation. Again, this old prophet comes to the young prophet. There's no aha moment when the young prophet says, wow, you really are from God. There's no moment like that. There's no moment. He just assumes that, well, this guy said he was, and I guess he is, even though he's telling me to ignore everything that I know came from God, but hey, he's an older prophet, and he says he has a newer revelation, so I guess I'll follow his newer revelation. Other than the revelation I really know to be true, there was no aha moment like he really is of God, and he was deceived again. If you're on the search for truth, that's great. Has there been that moment where we're like, aha, this makes sense. This makes sense. Happened to Peter. Peter. Jesus said, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was that aha moment. Whoa. I get it. It happened on that Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. It's like, whoa. Whoa, you really are. It happened on that time when Jesus called the seas. They said, wow, who is this man who has control over winds and waves? There was those aha moments, and I've seen it in my life and the lives of others. So again, here's my challenge. We live in a world, a spiritual warfare going on, and Satan's doing everything he can to deceive people, to keep them away from Christ, and even people in the church to get us to, 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 to move away from what we believe. So be diligent because deception destroys. Let me, let me bring this down to you, and if you're watching on Facebook today, let me just bring it down to you and everybody here. So let's look at the evidence. The Bible says all of us have sinned. Do you believe the evidence is there in your life? I think all of us have. We've all sinned. The evidence is there. We have, as the Bible says, Paul says, we've all fallen short of God's glory. Again, by admitting that you've sinned, you've just admitted there is good and evil. And just by admitting that there is such a thing as good and evil, you've admitted there is a lawgiver. And by admitting that there's a lawgiver who defines good and evil, then that lawgiver has to be God. Because if there's no God, there's no lawgiver. And if there's no lawgiver, there's no such thing as good and evil. So just by admitting I've sinned, you're like, just admitted that there is something that you're rebelling against. That's just the evidence. Here's what Paul said. The payment or the wages of our sin is death. What is that? Well, death is separation. (laughs) There are graveyards all over the place. People physically die. That's pretty strong evidence that the payment of our sin is death. But there's even a worse death than that. That's separation from God. And here's the thing. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you know in your heart that something is missing. Because God has set eternity in our hearts. That's why people all over the world worship something. Fame, power, idols, sports. We all worship something. Why? Because there's that that feeling that there's something out there bigger than me and I want to be attached to it. That's the evidence. That's your experience. We all know that we've fallen short of God. We all know that we're separated from God. How do you get to know Him? Well, repent. If you confess with your mouth 
Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Just admit it. I've rebelled against you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I need a Savior. I need a Deliverer. I believe He died on the cross. And believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead. You will be saved. You will be delivered. And the evidence is there. The experience is there. The association is there. It's all there. So here's my challenge. First of all, do you know Christ? If you're looking for Christ, if you're looking for the answers, here it is. Check it out. Look at it. Don't be like the young prophet and just blindly follow whoever comes down the road. Check it out. Read it. Start with the Gospel of John. Just read it. Ask God to speak to you. Let me tell you all something. We are in a spiritual battle. And let me just say this to you, those of us who are Christ followers. Satan's going to do everything he can to derail you. There are false teachers out there all over the place. On our TVs, on the internet, they're all over the place. Don't just blindly follow anybody just because they're a pastor of a church or have doctor or reverend or whatever in front of them. Don't do that. Don't be like the young prophet who just blindly followed the old prophet. If what they're saying is against what this book says, they're not of God. Bottom line, this is God's revealed word to us. May not always be easy. May not always make us feel comfortable. I get that, but it is what it is. I didn't write the rules. Be diligent because deception will destroy you. It will destroy you. It'll destroy your faith. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy you. Let's pray. Father, I pray if there's somebody here that is searching for the truth and they've heard what they've heard today, that your Holy Spirit will just convict their hearts, that they'll repent of sin and turn to Christ alone. The evidence is all there. The experience is there. The revelation is there. The association, the authority, it's all there in Christ. And so, Lord, maybe somebody right now will just bow their head in front of the computer and just say, Lord, I need you as Savior. Maybe somebody in this room says, Lord, I, I'm going to repent of my sin. I want to turn from it. I need you as Savior. Please save me. Tired of running. Tired of running. And Lord, I, I pray for those this morning who are followers of Jesus. It's my responsibility to warn. And Father, there's a lot of false teachers out there who are manipulating the truth, twisting it, making claims. Lord, help us to be wise, to be diligent, to search the Scriptures if what they're saying is truly true. And Father, I pray that we won't be deceived and have an epic failure from that deception. So Lord, again, it's my prayer that somebody here is, needs Christ that right now they'll respond to Him. If there's somebody here that's been following other teachers, that's fine. There's wonderful, great teachers out there. But Lord, I pray that they'll be diligent to make sure that what they're teaching is in alignment with your word. Lord, help us to be diligent because deception will destroy us. And Father, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.